I Spit on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. On this episode, we'll be discussing sexuality and the vampire. Vampires have been mesmerizing people, especially women, since the appearance of Dracula and his brides in Bram Stoker's novel. What is it about vampires that we are so entranced by? For our movies on this podcast episode, we have chosen Interview with the Vampire and The Hunger. So I wanted Jess and I to choose our top three absolute sexiest vampires. So this is not our top three vampires. So Nosferatu, unless Jess picks Nosferatu, (laughs) then that's her own personal (laughs) preferences. But the sexiest vampires, I'll go first. Number one. Miriam Blaylock, played by Catherine Denevue from The Hunger. That I realized after I rewatched The Hunger because she is something else. Uh, Dracula, played by Gary Oldman in Bram Stoker's Dracula, because he is just the epitome of class and being a gentleman and sexy. And number three is Jerry Dandridge, played by Chris Sarandon in Fright Night. <laughs> Come on, that dance scene? <laughs> oh my no, he God, is seducing yes. a teenage girl. But whatever. That's, you know, that's a different thing to talk about altogether. But damn. Doesn't matter. Damn, that's a hot scene. <laughs> it's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> this question took me a while to think about because uh, I love vampires and I think they're all very sexy, even the most monstrous ones. That's saying something about myself. So sorry, <laughs> gentlemen, but... <laughs> You're getting to learn a little bit about my kink. Um, My top three sexiest vampires are quite the opposite. My first and number one is uh, Celine, played by Kate Beckinsale in the Underworld series, because damn, she is badass and in that cat suit. Yes. Yeah. Head to toe latex is not a bad thing on anyone. Exactly. Um, Number two is also Dracula, but as I find Gary Oldman very attractive, I, for some reason, love Jared Butler's uh, inter- um, variation of Dracula in Dracula 2000. Oh, wow. <laughs> I that came out of left field. <laughs> that definitely. Well, guess what? I'm also going to throw you another curveball. I also really like number three, Stuart Townsend's version of Lestat in Queen of the Damned. Whoa, this is controversial right here. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, so take a, if anyone wants to go and take a look of Jared Butler's Dracula and Stuart Townsend's Lestat and take a look at those two images, you might see some similarities and you might see where Justice <laughs> preference lies when it comes to some men. <laughs> I'm Googling this after we're done. So those are my uh, my top three sexy vampires. I do agree. Jerry Dandridge, very hot. They're all, you know what? Honestly, fucking all vampires are hot. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Fair enough. So obviously the thirst is real here. The blood thirst. Yeah. And so really we want, how we want to start this podcast is we're going to go back and forth, not only talking about the films, Interview with the Vampire and the Hunger, but kind of give a little bit more of a historical context and talk about some kind of the both non-fictional and fictional references to vampires and sexuality throughout history. So starting this off, I wanted to talk a little bit about the historical images of vampires and uh, vampirism and sexuality. 
And so when we look at Tales of Vampires, and there's tons, like the research was extensive, enormous. There's a whole scholar of, there's a whole Facebook group of scholars on vampirism in that I just kept diving into and just getting deeper and deeper down a rabbit hole. But when we look at sexuality in early folktales, especially German folktales, we see a lot of images of vampires eating the breasts of their female relatives or their female victims. In a lot of Asian and American vampire folklore, we saw a lot of sexual undertones. And that particularly that when they were looking or talking about vampires is they were becoming sexually aroused by the sight of their victim's blood. So over time, especially when we see the arrival of Bram Stoker's Dracula, we see that vampires are becoming more and more sexual, especially literary vampires. And then in the 1970s, we see it more in film and television, where as the vampire is being, the image of the vampire is being introduced to the masses, they're becoming more sexualized, and especially in the 1970s. The film Vampires itself is full of sex, full of nudity, full of violence. It was the 70s, people. There is tons of that stuff in horror movies to be in general. And then, of course, in the last uh, maybe decade or so, you know, starting out with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we got the series True Blood, the originals, the Vampire Diaries, commonly always portraying uh, sexuality enticed in, in trance with a vampire. We're seeing a lot of sexy vampire uh, sex scenes happening or the whole image of like the the neck being bitten and I know Kelly is going to go into more description about how that you know the sense of how that feels or I was going to say Kelly can give us a sense of how that feels. Kelly were you bitten by a vampire? Well you know. <laughs> yeah but when we look at vampires instead of being in early folklore as these horrific undead monsters they've all of a sudden becoming these romantic sexual immortals and when we see think of the idea of the vampire we're seeing creatures of the night and typically when we think of creatures of nights we think of things like prostitution um, vampires themselves when they bite their victims they're penetrating their victims so it's this easy uh, seduction is always very slow and steady and then it erupts with the vampire biting the neck of their victim so I, I got this really great quote that I wanted to, uh, I'm taking a, a note from Kelly's book and I'm going to give I you guys a quote that really, really, really emphasize the idea of sexuality and vampires. The uh, underlying sexual theme of vampirism that has been slowly been building since Victorian literature and that has barely suppressed in the Hammer horror films of the 19, from 1958 to 1976 was finally unleashed with Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula in 1992. This led the way for sex to be emphasized much more in future vampire offerings, so much so that it's become rare to find a contemporary vampire film that does not utilize a sexual theme. As we've said, the vampire tropes allows for an outlet of repressed sexual desires in combination with moral lessons when women, when men and women succumb to them. And that's in reference to the idea of the Victorian literature. Victorian uh, men and women were very sexually repressed. So the idea of a vampire, uh, this night creature, this being that comes and brings about these sexual desires and is unleashed on their victims, it's very seductive and it's very attractive and they say and it's questioning a lot of moral lessons and a lot of moral detriments to these to these human souls when it comes to vampires like jess said that there were there have been many many stories throughout history of vampires or vampire like creatures uh definitely eastern european vampire lore is intense with a lot of different images of vampire type creatures particularly with the folklore of gypsies and their neighbors, the Southern Slavs. So for example, corpses were dug up as suspected vampires occasionally were reported to have an erection. Really interesting. After death. 
I think that's, as we know with science, that can happen. Not a vampire, just, just science. Gypsies thought of the vampire as a sexual entity. The male vampire was believed to have such an intense sexual drive that his sexual need alone was sufficient to bring him back from the grave. <laughs> that might be true now. His first act usually was to return to his widow with whom he engaged in sexual intercourse. Sexy. Nightly visits could ensue and continue over a period of time with the wife becoming, an exhaust, becoming exhausted and emaciated. In more than a few cases, the widow was known to become pregnant and bear a child by her vampire husband. The resulting child, called a dampier, that's D-H-A-M-P-I-R, I'm sorry, of course, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, a dampier, I've heard that termino terminology definitely before, uh, that was a highly valued person deemed to have unusual powers to diagnose vampirism and destroy vampires attacking the community. That's interesting because there's a whole uh, Japanese animation called Vampire Hunter D, which is about a damn fear. There we go. Right? Yeah. Could be true. Yeah. <laughs> in Russia, we, they also described the vampire as a sexual being. Among the ways in which it would itself be known as it would appear in the village as a handsome young stranger. Circulating among the young people in the evening, the vampire lured unsuspecting women to their doom. Russian warning tales for young people, really to listen to their elders and stay close to home, are also reminiscent from the ancient story from Greece, which tells of, oh God, Apollonius, Apollonius, yeah, jeez, oh who saved one of his students from the allure of the Lemai, Lemai, see, why do I always have Ooh. the really bad names, with whom he was about to marry, so a Lemai, it's L-A-M-I-A-I, Lemai. It was a type of phantom which seduced youths to satisfy their sexual appetite and feed on their flesh afterwards. It was a serpentine type creature. Oh, so if anyone's interested, you should watch The Lair of the White Worm because it is about a Lemai. There we go. Just knowing all these little extra things. Thank you. <laughs> so it's perfect. It's great. And then there was a Lang Suyar of Malaysia, which also seemed to be a sexual being. A female vampire uh, she was often pictured as a desirable young woman who could marry and bear children. Interesting. They were believed to be able to live somewhat normally in a village for many years, which revealed only by their inadvertent involvement in an activity that disclosed their identity. Could be anything. And then in Jewish you know, lore, we had Lilith, Caribbean legends of vampires, where they were normal by day and they would spend their nights as vampires, and no one knew. So we talked about the origins of the vampires, and then, like Jess said, we start seeing them in literature and then film. And overall, the image of the male vampire, Bram Stoker's Dracula novel was the first mainstream fictional form of a sexualized vampire, or vampires, the male and female. We saw a little bit more in literature, but mainly we moved into film from the 1930s until now huge into film people love that shit so in 1936 we had dracula's daughter which was actually the first obvious female sexual vampire obviously we had you know lugosi we've had christopher lee uh christopher lee's vampire was actually the first one to have fangs to bite with i'll mention them as a phallic symbol of vampiric penetration 1979, we saw Frank Langella's Dracula, which I sadly have not at all seen, but he's super attractive. Apparently, he's very suave. He attracted women by his sexual presence. 
So around this time, we kind of saw a transformation of Draco from a mere kind of monster into a hero who lived up to the movie's billing. Throughout history has filled the hearts of men with terror and the hearts of women with desire. Wow. There we go. Super sexy now. Then, of course, we talked about 1994. We got Gary Oldman's Dracula, who's handsome and sweet and strong. He's super successful, and he's just a dreamboat. You know, Francis Ford Coppola brought a vampire into proper society, and he was a handsome young man. He had money, foreign elegance, and he obviously was able to seduce the betrothed Mina from her wimpish fiancé. God love him. Jonathan Harker. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we definitely see that incredible scene in the movie where he slashes himself across the chest and you have Mina sucking the blood from his chest, which also, besides being really sexy, that is reminiscent a bit of, I'm going to say, fellatio, ladies. She's on her knees, sucking at something on him. It's it's pretty intense. It's really intense. <laughs> So the transformation of the vampire into a hero lover uh, was a primary element into the overall permeation of the vampire myth into the culture of the late 20th century. Um, you know, with the Nosferatu, the vampire, there's always been a perceived sexuality about them, whether, you know, it's about the penetration, the sharing of bodily fluids, because, come on, that's the essence of vampirism, or creating offspring, which we definitely can see in Interview of the Vampire. Here we get started. So you want me to tell you the story of my life? I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you all of it. I'm flesh and blood, but not human. I haven't been human for 200 years. From the novel by Anne Rice. From Neil Jordan the director of The Crying Game. I've come to answer your prayers. Life has no meaning anymore, does it? His name is Lestat. But what if I could give it back to you? Pluck out the pain and give you another life. One you could never imagine. I can see you lying on a bed of satin. <laughs> he chose one man. He gave him infinite power eternal life and a daughter who would be forever young. This is the only real evil left. And then he took the light of day. You're a vampire. You never knew what life was until it ran out in a red gush over your lips. Oh, I can't stand this any longer. You made us what we are, didn't you? God kills indiscriminately, and so shall we. Do you like dying? You condemn me to hell! Brad Pitt, Stephen Ray, 
Antonio Banderas, Kirsten Dunst, and Christian Slater. Interview with the Vampire. As a young goth teen, when Interview with the Vampire came out, I obviously, I definitely had read or got into the Vampire Chronicles around that same time. I loved it as a goth teen, of course. These beautiful, epic, Victorian-style vampires, and there's the costumes and the outfits, and Brad Pitt, what a dreamboat. Um, I was definitely a huge fan of it and have watched it so many times since I was a teenager, and that's going into many, many years that we won't, will not speak of. So my story with Interview with the Vampire is that I actually resisted watching this film for many years because while I'm a huge fan of vampire literature and vampire movies, like I was seriously obsessed as a preteen, I did not like Tom Cruise and so I refused to watch a mainstream movie that had Tom Cruise portraying the vampire Lestat that had Brad Pitt playing Louis. Um, I really enjoyed the Vampire Chronicles and so... It took me many years until finally in first year university, I was living on my own. I had a group of friends who were also into vampires and they said I really needed to see this film. So they lent it to me at the time. It was a free film. Okay, why not? Check it out. I watched it. I ended up loving it. I, I proved myself wrong. Tom Cruise did an amazing job as Lestat. I was really impressed with Brad as Louis. And just I ended up loving the image of this tragic, tortured vampires. And so... Yeah, that's when I saw Vampire, the the interview with the vampire. And I love the ending. I literally love the ending every time I see it. <laughs> <laughs> the ending is quite fantastic yeah. and so very yeah. Lestat. Yeah. Really. <laughs> so what did you like about the film if you when you rewatched it? What do I love? Okay, what there's many things that I still still love about it. It's a very classy, elegant movie. It's beautifully done and written. Like the costume. I love period pieces, period movies overall anyways. And obviously, like it was so just authentic and well done. Beautiful, beautiful men. Like all of them. <laughs> and honest, I loved Tom Cruise in the 90s. So Tom Cruise, I think, is in top form in one of his best roles ever. So fantastic. There's definitely an element of nostalgia for me. It's very 90s. We have Christian Slater, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Antonio Banderas, all on the top of their game in the 90s. Fantastic, you know, fantastic, beautiful actors. The acting's fantastic. It's like prose, which is very much like how Anne Rice writes. The score is beautiful and fantastic. Honestly, I also wish the theater de vampires, I'm not saying that in French, was a real thing. I wish that was real and I would go to it all the time <laughs> to watch it. <laughs> yeah. How about you? I would have to agree. The The film is beautifully done. Like the visuals are just stunning. Uh, they just, I will agree. I, I remember watching it and being like, okay, yes, I once again love Lestat. I love how Tom Cruise portrays him. And then I was, of course, Armand, whatever happened to Antonio Banderas? I had such a crush <laughs> on him back in the day. And I'm like, I've never heard about him anymore. So... It was nice seeing him again, and yeah, I really like the the Theodore de Vampire, where they're out uh, pretending to be human, pretending to be vampires, but they're actually vampires, and that just very whole interesting scene. So it is a very beautiful and well done film. 
really and it also like watching it now as an once again as an adult and really made me think so what did you dislike though do you have any dislikes well i really only have one and just like i feel that every piece of anne rice's work overall sometimes it's dreadfully slow Mm -hmm. And I really felt that now, whereas I don't remember really, especially when I was younger, really noticing it as much, but it can be slow. It's not action packed. You know, it's that's like all of her work can be very just slow. And let's just let's just look at the scenery for (laughs) fucking 30 minutes. So (laughs) or just have like one of them talk about it and you're just like, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm good. Yeah, so I think for me, what I dislike about the film is I honestly dislike how whiny Louis is most of the time, and I understand that's part of his character and that's part of his growth as a vampire. And you know, Anne Rice likes to write about the saddest vampires in the world, but at the same time too, though, part of me is like, dude, you're a fucking vampire. Like, come on, it's not that bad. Like, live it up. Lestat's got it going. Lestat's knows what he's doing. But then I also makes me think it reminds me of reading the vampire Lestat and then how Lestat ends up getting that way too. So I'm just like, you know what? It just happens. Yeah. happens. Eventually vampires become sad and hate their immortal life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and super lonely. Every vampire is lonely. Yeah. Really. It's a huge thing and that I've noticed with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Everyone's lonely because you live forever forever and sense. Just, everyone dies ar- sense. everyone dies yep. around you you can't love anyone because they'll just all die yep <laughs> unless you make them a vampire and then you don't know if they if they become vampires they're gonna become crazy and you're just like i can't handle this that's true they can become crazy oh yeah. boy and then you're stuck with them maybe forever talk about fucking monogamy god <laughs> <laughs> the eternal monogamous life Ugh. oh goodness <laughs> so terrible the reason why we we chose the the interview with a vampire to discuss in this podcast about uh sexuality being representative and particularly with the male vampires is because what we're seeing today is really based upon what we saw in Anne Rice's vampires and how it really influenced culture but also we kind of saw it as early as Bram Stoker's Dracula but then we go even further back to what inspired Dracula so the main inspiration the the OG of male vampires stems from Vlad the Impaler we know him we all know him for sure so he was born in 1431 during a time of unrest he was named Vlad the third son of Vlad the second Dracul Dracula which is which actually means son of the dragon uh, his father was the ruler of Transylvania classic place for vampires Sometimes there's hotels there. (laughs) Uh, So little Vlad and his brothers were captured by the Ottomans, where he was tutored into the arts of war, science, and philosophy. So after his family was brutally slaughtered, he took on the name Vlad Dracula, son of the dragon, which I mentioned, and fought to bring back his family's power. This is where it believed that Vlad became very ruthless. He would invite those who opposed him to banquets at his home, have them stabbed and impaled on spikes. And there were the rumors that he, and those pictures of him, that he was dining all around the bodies. I remember that being a rumor. We don't know if that's true or not. His tactics were brutal, and for the time, he was able to ward off invading Ottoman sultans with the sight of the carnage. 
However, in the time of the Ottoman Empire, it gained tractions and attacked the city and took the throne from Vlad. He was killed and beheaded. However, there is mystery surrounding his death in the sense that nobody could find his body or his head. And then that inspired Bram Stoker's creation of Dracula. So yeah, so everyone knows Dracula. And if you don't know Dracula, then you clearly live under a rock and you need to educate yourself. Dracula was... Or a random forest or castle in Transylvania. (laughs) Exactly, yes. So... The story of Dracula was created by Bram Stoker in the 19th century, and it was also, and this was during a time during when sexuality was not something that was publicly discussed. Dracula himself, he's the archetype, he's the archetypal vampire. He inspired a genre and is, and is sexier than any folklore type of vampire than we had ever met. When we look at Dracula, we see this sexuality that is wrapped in whispers of the night, intense gazes, and with a, with a finger dip sweeping along your necks, right? Everyone, so all you women out there listening to this podcast, just imagine a scene of Dracula coming to your bedroom at night, right? We all want that, right? <laughs> I think about it every single night. <laughs> so we read in this novel, but what's really interesting is when we first saw Dracula on the film screen. And that was in 1971 during a time when sexuality was being openly explored. So imagine a film, imagine a book written in the 19th century during Victorian time when sexuality was uh, being repressed. You have this very sexy vampire who is attracted, who's a trans, this young, beautiful virgin, uh, Mina, and trying to take her, her away from, her, like as Kelly said, wimpy Jonathan Harker and make her his bride, his next, you know, his next willing, uh, you know, victim to help him regain his power. Take that, bring that into the 1970s, when all of a sudden, sexuality is all over the screen. We see it all throughout the Hammer films, the sexy Christopher Lee Dracula that you just can't help but not resist. And then, once again, we see in 1992 with Fran, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Gary Oldman's variation of Dracula, who is a very, also very sexy Dracula, but also at the same time too very sympathetic, that you feel for him, you want him to have Mina, you want him to en- ensnare her. And then we see in Dracula 2000, Jessica's Jared Butler, we see sexuality redefined again. <laughs> and it becomes... <laughs> you know what? I've never seen that what? movie. You need to watch it. Never seen Dracula you 2000. You need to watch it because it has an interesting take on Dracula. So it's okay. So for you listeners out there, we watch in Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. We see that Dracula was a Christian soldier. He defies God. And that's how he becomes cursed to become Dracula. Well, in Dracula 2000, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say this to ruin this for Kelly, but... <laughs> When you end up it's finding fine. out that Dracula is actually Judas Iscariot, the one who portrayed Jesus, and that's how he becomes Dracula. <laughs> yeah, oh, interesting twist. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I like the warrior bit much more. I, I gave you the horns. Got, I don't know got, if you noticed that. I got the metal fine. horns over the video camera beat, ladies and gentlemen. So, yeah, Christian warrior who defies God. Yeah, that's all. That's, that's very black. <laughs> It's very fucking metal say, of him, okay? black metal of him. Fucking, he was it out there burning is. churches. Oh, my God. Oh, oh <laughs> Our yes. podcast has gone from, like, explicit to, like, blacklisted. <laughs> <laughs> so we see in Dracula 2000, once again, sexuality redefined. It went from being very loving and very gentle with Dracula to all of a sudden very hardcore and raw once again. 
because of Dracula, we see traditional male vampire. And the traditional male vampire is he's a handsome aristocrat. He's fatal to women. He's only interested in virgins. And as he sucks their necks, they die and he lives. And what does this mean? Well, we see this in Dracula's wives as an example. So Dracula, we all know, has his brides. And his brides are a symbol of Dracula's overwhelming sexual power. That he has this need to preserve himself as a vampire, as a male vampire. He needs to pr protect himself in, in a form of self-preservation. He commits sexual thievery by seducing the women of other men. And this is in his, in his hopes to expand his harem and to overpower the male-dominated society, which is a threat against him as an immortal undead being. He uses his powers and his the powers of his vampiric wives to attack male society and to continue to grow his power. So Dracula is able to control women through sexual union with them and through vampire reprodu vampiric reproduction, which is the interchangeability of fluids, such as blood, aka semen. And when the blood is transfused from vampire to victim, a transformation is initiated, turning the virginal women into sex-crazed, bloodthirsty daughters of the night. By being sexually intimate with them, Dracula is then solidifying his bond and their connection with him. Hence, Dracula's wives and his brides. Dawn, these may be the last words I write in this journal. Dracula has left me with these women, these devils of the pit. They drain my blood to keep me weak, barely alive so I cannot escape. I will try one last time today to escape through the water. There must be passageway to the river. And then away from this cursed land, where the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet. Speaking of the brides, they are the essentially the first introduction of sexuality and vampires in Bram Stoker's Dracula. So Jonathan Harker, he's there... He seems he's trapped in Dracula's castle and he's afraid, but he's also seduced and very much intrigued by these vampire brides. They're very overtly sensual, they're sexual, which is an inversion of the gender stereotypes of the Victorian era. So that obviously was, I'm sure, quite alluring and intriguing by him. You know, men are okay to have active sexual appetites where women shouldn't and they're supposed to be sweet, mild-mannered, and not overtly sexual whatsoever. Wear your tight corsets, keep your hair up, be, you know, prim and proper. So Harker confronts them and he finds them extremely appealing as sex objects, who also obviously embody an element of danger. So this is a, a quote from the book. Harker noted, I felt in my heart a wicked burning desire that they would kiss me with their red lips. It's interesting in the beginning of vampires in like literature and things that the vampire, it's not referred to as biting, it's referred to as the kiss. And again, the mouth, the kiss, the teeth, though we don't see, like I said, until really Christopher Lee is the, I'm saying the sexual organ of the vampire. Stoker then went on to describe the three as sensual predators, and again, yes, their bite as a kiss. Yes, so the mouth, the sexual organ of the vampire, we see it. They're, you know, the lips, like especially with the women, the lips are, are full and they're red. The mouth is very moist and we're dripping with blood. The bite or the kiss brings pleasure and pain. 
another quote from the novel, luring at first with an inviting orifice, a promise of red softness, but delivering instead of a piercing bone. Hmm. Dracula's kiss, like that of a demonic Prince Charming, triggers the release of this latent power and excites in these women a sexuality so mobile, so aggressive, kissed into a sudden sexuality, going towards Lucy, after being bitten and her encounters with Dracula, she grows voluptuous. She starts scaring off her suitors because now she's very sexualized. Come to me, with Jack Dracula are thrilling you know Dr Lucy post Dracula encounter in the garden we can definitely see this in the movie the 1994 movie she's heavily breathing her you know her gown is not torn but it's like kind of revealing her lips are half parted I'll bring it back to Mina sucking the blood from the chest of Dracula do not tell me this is isn't sexual as fuck okay this is intense. <laughs> yeah. Damn. I wish I would have rewatched that. I don't need to. It's ingrained in my mind as a child, like a teenage child. Oh, man with long hair and facial hair. Wonder where it comes from. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I knew it was going to get hot in here. I'm sweating. <laughs> so our male vampires um, were, you know, they're debonair and a little bit monstrous, but still kind of, you know, well-dressed and whatnot. But vampirism in women that we would see is they see them more as like a deformation and men really not as much, which we'll get into the incredibly fascinating history of female vampires in literature and film later on. But Carol Fry, she's the author of the article Fictional Conventions and Sexuality in Dracula. So technically in literature, Dracula would have been called, quote unquote, the rake, which is like the female version, which is a vamp archetype, but men are called the rake. So they'll torment and distress pure women of proper society. And mainly we saw Dracula go after women, definitely a lot of women in literature and in film, it's often women. Uh, but the consequences for being bitten by a vampire were much more worse for women than it were, were for men. Women were left tainted by societal standards or morally depraved afterwards, like I said, they were now deformed, men not so much. Dracula can also be seen as a product of Victorian sexual repressiveness, which is Jessica definitely mentioned earlier. So what gives Dracula so much attention and entertainment? Why do we love him? What's so alluring about him specifically? I think for all of us it's different, but overall, there's a couple of main points with him. He's powerful. He has incredible physical strength, obviously has supernatural strength often, which can translate to sexual potency. 
We see men, you're very strong. That means you're going to be a great father, you know, for your children, sexually, in theory, you'll be fantastic. <laughs> Non-procreative sexuality. So Victorians thought that sex, penis and vagina sex, was only for procreation, not for fun. Um, there were also obvious, there was the sexual release without the fear of breeding. Uh, that's my main thing about vampires. Let's do some kind of sexual activity without ever having to worry about getting pregnant, because that would be ideal. Promiscuity or sexual freedom goes against monogamy, which Victorians felt was the only form of proper sexuality. can only be monogamous. The Dracula is definitely polyamorous. Damn it. Damn. So he has abnormal, quote-unquote, abnormal sexuality, the blood-sucking not normal sex, or however you want to interpret it, Victorians only thought that intercourse sex was the only legitimate method of sexuality or sexual expression. Another thing that adds to Dracula's mystique is his potential bisexuality, which has been hinted at, because he doesn't only go after females, but also goes after males, which definitely leads us... Leads us into Interview with a Vampire. So what's really interesting is that Dracula will always be the inspiration for all vampires. Just from the way he dresses, the way he holds himself, he's always a, a part of an aristocratic origins. Even though he lives in a desolate castle, at the end of the day, he likes nice things. He likes to nice dress well, and we we see that in every variation of in uh, Dracula. But we do eventually see the image of the vampire transform a bit especially that of the modern vampire in the 21st century, Anne Rice was introduced us to a different type of vampiric creature. So while they're still inspired by Dracula, we see vampires transform into more sensual creatures instead of just purely sexual predators. Her vampires, uh, the vampires of Louis, Lestat, Armand, they're very sensual creatures. We fall in love with them, we fantasize about them, and they are very, Anne Rice's vampires, they're very beautiful, but they're also very self-loathing. So while they're prettier, they're smarter, they're more stronger, they're more intelligent than the, the normal human being, they are also very tortured souls. So whereas Dracula, like he was tortured, but he embraced his, uh, what you would say, he embraced his curse or he embraced his lot in life. The vampires in Interview with the Vampire, they struggle with that. And they in the various and they find in various means of ways of dealing with their new immortality, whether they're like Lestat and they just embrace life and they'll drink from different men and women all throughout the night, or they're gonna be like Louis and they're gonna struggle and they're gonna, you know, feed off of the, the blood of animals and they're gonna always live with like, you know, regret or holding on to that bit part that's still of them human, or they're gonna be like Armand and just fully embrace death and then just recognize that they are death, they are part of the whole vampire lore. What was really nice is that tied in with our 21st century vampires, we see that after the 1970s, a little bit of a little bit of a, a bit of a facelift in supernatural horror archetypes, especially with that of the vampire. So along the same time as we see advances in gender equality and the, the in quotes me decade, we see a time of personal identity which is paramount and that which impact is sexual identity. We see that Anne Rice's vampires, they do not, I, I want to say, they do not, they're not defined as either straight, gay, 
uh, bisexual. Like I, as Kelly would say, we do see more bisexual nature with vampires, but they are just more fascinated by love, as you would say, and their their terms, their type of love when they fall in love with another uh, being. When we look at Lestat, the relationship between Louis and Lestat, it is definitely a relationship of both possession and love and desire for one another. Uh, but because Lestat is thus Louis' sire, there's a bit of like a father-son relationship, but yet yeah, at the same time too, um, an older partner with a younger partner trying to teach them the ways of being the vampire, but very possessive in the end. What we also see with um, Anne Rice's vampires is we see the mythology of the vampire change. So before with uh, Dracula and earlier images of vampires, we see that, you know, stakes and garlic crosses where we could kill them with a vampire, but with uh, Anne Rice's vampires, they don't do any harm. Stakes, crosses, garlic, nothing, they don't do any, they, they don't hurt the vampire. Um, they have the abilities to self-heal themselves, they can fly without shape-shifting, and they could also feed off of uh, the blood of an animal to survive. Yeah, so I pretty much believe that that change in the vampire mythos was due to Anne Rice. She had incredibly strong Catholic upbringing and she ended up rejecting that later on in her adult life. She developed a more rational ethical belief system which obviously was super important in reworking the vampire mythos and the vampire chronicles. This term that I think Jess was looking for and I firmly believe overall, but definitely in Anne Rice's Vampires, is pansexuality, where it's not about who they're, necessarily who they're biting or the sex of the person that they're biting. It's just the, the allure, the human allure of having these, these victims. Uh, we'll get it as a very astute uh, example, perfect example, and it was when I was re-watching the movie, is that moment where Lestat is trying to teach Louis the ropes and he gets Louis to go after this really older woman and she has the two poodles and he's and Louis obviously eats the poodles because he can't kill people but you'll kill tiny dogs damn it Louis um but Lestat is off you know mesmerizing that beautiful young boy you know that he's probably a teenager he's probably 17 years old but he is just as gentle and sweet and sensual with him than he is with any woman. So I really feel like Anne Rice's vampires are actually pansexual over being either homosexual, bisexual or not, but they're really just about, like you said, about the love and the connection between people. However, you know, Louis, Lestat, Armand all seem to prefer companionship from male vampires that you can see definitely in the movie and throughout her books yeah she definitely created like the pinnacle of the romanticized sensual vampire everything everything you said really just hit the mark on the type of vampires side note i really tried to read a lot of her other vampire books and they're very much the same god damn her vampires are just like you said like they're self-loathing like they're not having a good time in life besides lestat anything with lestat has always been an enjoyable read for me for sure. I will definitely agree with you on Lestat. Um, also too though, what's interesting is that she really focuses on the plight of the male vampires and their desire, not only for, uh, you know, on how to live an immortal life, but also their old desire of the old human life. Like, especially whenever Lestat talks, he talks about how 
whenever he turns a new vampire, he's like, I'm going to give you the choice I wasn't given. So he likes to always hearken back to this old uh, mortal life that he had and that was taken away from him. But what really interested me in the film is the sexual is, and I will get to this point, but the only female element of the film that we see is Claudia. And we see her in two elements. We see Claudia both being used as a way to fix almost a broken marriage. So we see that Louis and Lestat are clearly love each other. They're clearly, they quarrel a lot. They quarrel often. And Lestat is very possessive of Louis and just trying to get him to embrace his vampire life, but also in the way embrace his love for uh, Louis. And when Louis takes on, when Louis, you know, overcome by his hunger, feeds on Claudia, and Lestat brings her home as like, you know, as something like, hey, you're clearly interested in this child. I'm going to turn her. I will turn her into a vampire. And you, she, and as he says to Claudia, you are mine and Louis' daughter. Now we are one happy family. And I thought that was a very interesting element to add to the story of these two male vampires just learning how to be vampires in, a, in, this, new, in this new world. And it reminded me a lot of like, you know, kind of like, couples who have children to kind of fix a broken marriage and so they bring in the element of Claudia and what's interesting is that as we see is Claudia she is turned at a young age but then we see like they talk like 30 years later she's older and what we see is this maturing woman in a young girl's body and they talk about and in a couple of articles I read about they talk about how her sexuality is repressed and that because she is stifled in the in the body of a child she's actively falling in love with Louise she sees the Louis as a father but at the same time too when we read the books and all they're clearly like if she was older or she was in the body of an actual female woman they would have been lovers and the only way that Claudia is can fulfill her sexual desires is through her killing so that's why she becomes like this perfect killer and she becomes a little bit deranged from that and she's so good and she's so good at killing she's so good at helping Lestat in these ways but she at the same time too she's also portrayed as very vindictive and deranged and I and I find that a little bit problematic when it comes to uh the female vampires is that if and uh, you will also kind of see that too with um in uh, Queen of the Damned with uh, the vampire Akasha very sexually active and stuff like that but she's also like a, a really good killer and if she doesn't have have it her way or she's not being sexually fulfilled she just kills all the time and then we see that the same thing in uh, with Claudia so I think it's a very interesting way that we see the vampires when we, we were met with Armand in his uh, theater de vampire where they're all the vampires are tragic they're all intoxicating souls they're all sexual killers of higher forms of intelligent life and they use they mix their monstro their monstrosity and their sexuality in their shows for the public to witness. And so it's like an, almost like an interesting kind of like little like vampiric peep show. Like here you go. <laughs> like I like that. We're vampires, but we're not vampires. But yeah, like you know, but we're gonna have you watch us feed on this human because it's very like is enticing to us, but we also know how enticing it is to you, especially when we see that woman like jump up and be like, Take me, Missio, yeah. take me like and you're like, Oh, do you know what you're asking no, for, you honey? No, you don't. Or do you? Do you want to know? See? It's sexy as hell. Arm okay, Armand when he walks onto that stage. Oh, yes. Damn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you know, and there is a moment that I really noticed this time around when I watched it 
when Louis is going to leave. He doesn't want anything to do with this because he never wants to do anything fun. Um, and Armand <laughs> really wants him to stay because Anne Rice is vampires. They want male companionship. And they have that... Louis is like holding on to his face. I feel like unnecessarily so. But having this exchange. And I was like, you're going to kiss. You look like you... Like yeah. things are going to happen here. I want them to happen also. But... I was like, this is an unnecessary, close, very much a tease. Like, very much a tease. Very much a yes. tease. I, for Armand, thanks, Louis. Vam- vampire <laughs> cock tease. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, you can see that. Like, I, and I, I know the scene you're talking mm. about. Like, I'm, and I rewatched that scene. It just reminds me of, like, when a woman is going in and, like, teasing her partner. And the guy's just, like, you know, holding in, like, oh, I really want you to kiss me so bad, but you're not going to. And you're like... Yep. And you just see that look on just, like, pure, like, I know. unmet satisfaction on Armand's face. Like, just, like, ugh. <laughs> like, yeah. Sweet Armand. And he did such a huge thing for Louis. Uh, he just really, I feel like he probably fell in love with Louis a little bit. Because why, would, why wouldn't you? <laughs> so, so fascinating. Oh, yeah, and the whole dripping blood on the lips. It's moist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. See, again, watch that. Literally watch any vampire movie and just, like, watch. It's sexual as all hell. It's... <laughs> and those men are, like, androgynous, and they're beautiful. You know, they're not technically physically sexual with anyone, but, of course, there's a, that sensuality to them. You know, that, that gentleness uh, with them to, to everyone. It was interesting rewatching that movie now as an, a grown ass adult. <laughs> <laughs> Not an angsty goth teenager watching and being like, oh, vampires are so like tragic and oh, so wonderful. And then you're watching it now and just like, yeah, Damn. yeah. And their loneliness, <laughs> which I feel like all vampires are super lonely. I'm sure Armand was super lonely because everyone around him, they're all like, truly creatures of the night you know nobody else really seemed to have much personality they're all kind of they're really intense whereas he he probably because he was older than all of them and made all of them but you know he had that same kind of you know that wisdom and that loneliness that Anne Rice's vampires all have don't read the book it's it's not good <laughs> in a way and and kind of in the way like as we're talking about this and thinking about this i'm like vampires are kind of like the idea of polyamory in a sense of like over time like you can't you'll have like one in, in, immortal partner with you but over time like that partner can't fulfill everything of your your needs so you're eventually going to create another vampire that's going to satisfy a new need or a new desire and you kind of see that with like armand like he has that with like kind of like his coven of vampires and he's like they still don't fulfill the needs and then all of a sudden like louis comes along and he's like i'm entranced i really want to be with you i want to like i want to do these things for you and louis is like no sorry not interested in the vampire lifestyle and he's like that heartbreak wow. and you're just like oh yeah like That's you know sad. vampires they, they live a long ass time so yeah they're gonna have multiple partners and I remember reading a couple of the other Anne Rice novels and at some point in time, all of Anne Rice's vampires, they all at some point had some sort of like relationship or companionship at some point or another. And so like when you see them all come together to fight Akasha, they all have like kind of these like histories as they talk about with it. Yeah. Totally. Intertwining lives, the vampire community, the polyamorous <laughs> community everybody's been with everyone discovery vampires are actually polyamorous everyone (laughs) 
That was my epiphany. Hundred <laughs> percent. Love them even more. Yeah. Uh, so, how do we feel about *Interpret the Vampire*? Are we ready for the hunger? I am always ready for the hunger. Literally, and the movie. <laughs> As we discussed with Interview the Vampire, it is a very fascinating film. I know some people would think like, hey, why would you choose a film like Interview the Vampire to talk about vampires and sexuality? You know what? Go back, watch that film. Because yes, sex is sex and sex is great. And vampires and their the way they're intimate with their partners is very interesting. Like, you know, everyone's seen True Blood. Everyone has watched the great scenes between Eric Northman and Sookie Sackhouse and be like, yeah, that's hot. But you know what? At the same time too. It's really hot to watch two vampires just being very sensual with each other and just being like, hmm, that is very interesting. Which leads us into a very interesting film that is not only both sensual and sexual, but also fascinating at the same time too. And that is the 1983 film, The Hunger. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey lady, how about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock. The Hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting. And soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. The timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger. The Hunger. You know, oddly enough, I don't remember where I heard about it. I just know that I did. And I was very curious. Mainly what drew me to it because David Bowie was in it. And I was like, David Bowie is a vampire? I'm into this. I need to see this movie. And kind of blind bought it a long time ago. And I love this movie and have watched it numerous times since then. But uh, it's grown, it's even grown on me each and every uh, rewatch that I have for it. So it's, it's incredible. Yeah, I will have to agree. So actually, I do have a story about seeing this film, and it does include Kelly. Because I love vampires, as I've said like multiple times through this podcast, 
I have a collection of vampire movies and only certain vampire movies get into this collection. If it's a shitty movie like Blood Rain, I will not add it into my collection. <laughs> However, <laughs> Blood Rain. Oh, oh God. But if it's a really good film, I will be able to become obsessed about it and I will make sure to add it to my collection. Hence, The Hunger. So a couple, like years and years back, visiting Kelly at Fan Expo, we had a long day walking the convention floor. We had a big vegan dinner. We were I'm exploring all of Kelly's movies because at the, you know, typically the way it is every year is I would choose like one horror movie to watch. This was at the time when I wasn't watching horror movies on my own. I would only watch them at Kelly's place. And I decided I felt like watching something with vampires. And I saw this movie, The Hunger, that she had on DVD. And of course, I also love David Bowie because of my obsession with him as Jareth at the Goblin King and Labyrinth. And I'm like, this is intriguing. I have to watch this. We watched it. I fucking loved it. The opening scene with like Bajas and uh, Bella Lugosi's dead. Hot. Just, just great. Became obsessed with this film. Spent many years looking for it. Finally found it. I finally own a copy of it and I have watched it multiple times since. So Kelly, what do you like about The Hunger? The Hunger. Hmm so many wonderful things and a lot of it it actually is similar to what i enjoy about interview with the vampire but very different you know interview with the vampire being a period piece so everything is very much of that time the hunger is much more of the 80s time it's very hip glossy you know the entire movie is beautiful it's an art piece the score is so fantastic and sad um, just like I think that movie really is. The acting is fantastic. It's sexy as all hell, but also very sensual. Because there's differences. There's differences than being like, this is sexy, but mm-hmm. it's like raw sex happening, and that's sex, that's fine. But when there's a coyness and a softness and a gentleness to it, it's, it's definitely more intriguing to me. Uh, and yeah, I'm going to also say that opening scene is that scene along with the fucking blood rave scene and blade are my two favorite vampire oh. scenes minus also mina sucking the blood off of dracula's chest okay those three those three scenes <laughs> in all the vampire movies i have seen are my favorite it's like so intense you know you have like the scenes of the monkeys going crazy with the music and then you know at the sexy goth club they find that the you know that couple to take home and then, you know, Bowie, John brings them off, her off into the kitchen. It's all just super sexy. God damn it. And, like, the color in that, it's all, like, black with, like, like blue hues. It's so wonderfully done. I love how we've gone from top ten three sex, or top three sexiest vampires to, like, top three sexiest vampire scenes, people. <laughs> because <laughs> I will also agree. As part of my likes, that whole opening credit is really sexy very little is said it's all about the music so it gets you right into the atmosphere of the movie and because this movie is much like this there's not as much there's not as much dialogue it's more about watching the scenes and watching the actions between the actors and how they play um totally it's all the body language i also feel it's a very progressive movie not only with the whole idea with you know obviously vampire sexuality but lesbianism the scenes between uh uh, Miriam Baylock and Sarah oh my god fucking hot Susan Sarandon like I had actually never seen her and I, I know there's controversy around Susan Sarandon now but I actually never had seen her as a very sexual individual 
when I saw Rocky Horror Picture Show, but after seeing that film, I was like, oh, wow, she is sexy. It's a famous scene. Uh, did you dislike anything about the movie? Uh, honestly, not much. I don't know. I, I can't. Honestly, the only thing I dislike is that I don't know more about Marion's background. And that's what's so fascinating. And I know that there's a book based on it. And I need to find that book and read it because there's got to be like an interesting history as to why her lovers die over so much time. And that's the only thing I don't like is that I just don't, you don't know what's the whole history about why she's this type of vampire and why she doesn't, you know, like have like the fangs and why they use the unk instead to, you know, get their blood. That's fair. There's a lot of mystery. There's like in the beginning, it just has flashes to her history. And she's as old as Egyptian times, might even be older. But it's if, if you blink, you'll miss that scene. So it leaves a lot up to kind of your imagination interpretation. Um, the, yeah, the only thing that I would say I dislike about it, but I don't even super dislike about it is the ending because it's slightly confusing which I think we should talk about later on, but that's really it. But other than that, I goddamn love this movie. Again, I rewatched it recently on a second date with someone, and I was just mesmerized. It had been a number of years since I had watched it and then rewatched it for the podcast, and I just absolutely adore that entire movie. Besides the ending, and that's just my own you know, brain being slightly confused, but it would be fun to talk about, is... I just think it's perfect. Like, I just adore it. So what's interesting is so we talked about Interview the Vampire and we talked about the origins of male vampires and male sexuality and vampire lore. But what's really interesting, especially when we had chosen this film, we could have chosen other films. We could have chosen to talk about, you know, there's a film called actually about Carmilla, the first original vampire. We could have, you know, we could have picked out Underworld and talked about female vampires. But we chose The Hunger because... It's a much more interesting story and it also really relates to the idea of the femme fatale in the origin of the female vampire. To look at the origin of the female vampire, well, we really want to look first back at history. And, and technically, while we talked about uh, Vlad the Impaler being the inspiration for Dracula, people really like to look back and look at like, the first original vampire as they would consider as the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. So born in 1560, she was a beautiful woman who was known for her looks, her wealth, and her excellent education. And she was part of the Bathory family who ruled Transylvania, hmm, hmm. interesting connection, as an independent <laughs> principality within the kingdom of Hungary. So she had a very interesting uh, history background. So before she actually married uh, Fernac Nadesasidi, in 1575 when she was 14 she actually had a lover prior of lower status who she actually had a child with her child was taken away from her and was given to another family to raise and her lover was actually killed by Fernek um, by having him quartered and essentially just tortured and quartered and killed so anyway her her future husband kills her past lover she actually outranked her husband socially, who was just a soldier, and he was always away often. So while she ran the estate and raised her four children, she took many lovers. And when he was, uh, she was 43 years old, he died. So what's really interesting about Elizabeth Bathory is that she was involved in quite a bit of some sadistic activities. So not only was she uh, prolific in her love affairs, she was also known for torturing and killing young women by drinking their blood to preserve her, her youthfulness and her looks. 
This started with her servants, and then the daughters of local peasants, and then the daughters of gentry families who were sent to her to learn good manners. Eventually, she was reported by a Lutheran minister who started to investigate her in 1610. When essentially they found out the truth, she was arrested, she was tried and found guilty of her crimes. However, because of her rank and because of her status, she wasn't killed or beheaded. She was only imprisoned uh, for life in her castle where she was held in solitary confinement within, by being walled up in a single room with no windows. She died there at the age of 54 in 1614. The Countess of Bathory would definitely inspire many of our female vampiric counterparts, particularly the one uh, we know as Carmilla. So the legends and lore of female vampires kind of started with troubles with childbirth, which created vampires or vampire-like creatures and evolved being, you know, overall being more related to death. We saw a succubus and the vamp-type architectures. There was a strong sexual relationship at the heart of a short story from Samuel Tyler Taylor Coleridge's Christabel, which was expanded into Carmilla, the popular vampire story by Sheridan Lee Fanu. So our origins beyond Bathory were all in novels and literature in the 19th century. Overall, the female vampires showed them as more of like, sounds intense, but like raping their victims. So you'd have women that have some sort of power over them, either often social status. So you'd see women of a higher, I don't want to say higher power, you know what I mean? A higher social ranking, like Elizabeth Bathory and her servants and everything, kind of taking advantage of them. So attacking and seducing those that were lower than them. And that it's a poem, sorry, that Christabel was a poem and it had two women and it was very suggestive of them being together. And then it turns into the incredible story of Carmilla going from there will lead into mainly the incredible history of female vampires in film. So as Kelly said, Carmilla was written by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu in 1817 in Ireland. So this was years before Dracula was written by Bram Stoker. And when we read this story, it comes from the narrative of Laura, who is the daughter of an aristocrat, who speaks about a meeting a curious, sickly stranger, Carmilla, who she ends up befriending. Uh, this occurs at the same time while young maidens are becoming mysteriously sick in the village and, and Laura also become, becomes to become unwell, but also has dreams about a giant cat attacking her very sexually in the night. And it ends up being revealed that Carmilla is a vampire. So as what Kelly was saying, this is kind of one of the first introductions of the lesbian lady vampire novella. It was written, like, as um, in 1817, it was written around the time when the British Empire was obsessed with morality and sex and, and obsessed with repressing sexuality. And so it was very interesting to see a story come out about two female characters having a complicated relationship with one another with very sexual lesbian undertones. Carmilla, as we know, is a vampire. She's able to shapeshift into a cat. She loathes Christianity. And she likes to steal the lifeblood of her 18-year-old companion, Laura, in the evening. And like I said, Laura has many sexual dreams about her encounters with this cat or Carmilla in the night. So as a lesbian, it's very, the story is very representative of the moral terrors found in the night and around homosexuality around the time of the British Empire. But at the same time, too, the story is also very progressive in counterpart to Dracula because it has a very LGBT-centric vampire and it's very LGBT in its vampiric lore. 
So in this quote here, the premise of this novel is that even the most pure of hearts cannot resist the supernatural seduction. This is the idea that extremely attractive to Victorian upper class, especially women whose desires have been rigidly restricted. As I said, Victorian women were the angels of the household. They did not think about sex. They were not seen in a sexual way. They were only there to reproduce and raise the children and keep the household in tidy order. If men wanted to think of women in a sexual way, they were seen as prostitutes that were seen outside the home. But what's really interesting is that what we see in the in the story of Laura is that not only is she repulsed, but she's also drawn to this very beautiful vampiric creature and she becomes confused by the fact that Carmilla is a woman. Carmilla herself, she becomes enamored by her victims and she wants to become one with Laura through drinking and then she does this through the drinking of her blood. So Carmilla herself, she's the antithesis of heteronormative and male-centered world of vampires, which is very interesting. And so interesting too is that at the time, the novel was not very successful because it sees two women at the time, a very unnatural form of love. But what we see now is that the story of Carmilla is much more popular now than it was ever in the back of the and back in the day. And so that was makes it very interesting is that Carmilla, she is the origin of our female of female vampires. And as we'll discuss in the Hunger, the interesting relationship between uh, female vampires and their female victims. In 1936, Dracula's Daughter. So that was the first filmic portrayal of obvious sexuality of vampires overall. Uh, we have female vampires seducing, you know, young folks, and it was definitely more charged with sexuality than anything played by Lugosi or anything prior to that. Actually, in the 1950s in Malaysia, there were a bunch of movies that were heavily vampiric. In 1957, we have Blood of Dracula, Black Sunday in 1960, an Italian film released in 1960 called Blood and Roses, which was another on-screen version of Carmilla. The Hammer Trilogy, Vampire Lovers, Lust for a Vampire, and Twins of Evil. Vampire Lovers came out in 1971, which showed the unclad Carmilla and Laura romping around freely in their bedroom. Suggestive. In 1971, The Velvet Vampire by Stephanie Rothman, which starred and directed a woman. Daughters of Darkness in 1971. Countess Dracula in 1972. Vampires, which we noted earlier, in 1974. Overall, in the 1960s, we saw more supporting roles of female vampires, you know, like the vampire brides, very gothic representations of them, the gowns, the castles, like Hammer, a lot of Hammer films. The 1970s, we saw, you know, a lot of movies came out, again, still based on Carmilla and Bathory, lots of nudity, exploitation-style movies, very sexual, the nudity, perhaps due to the rise in feminism and lesbianism, you know, freedom of sexuality in those uh, during that time. 80s and 90s, we had a variety of different famous vamp female vampires. We have Miriam Blaylock in The Hunger, Grace Jones in Vamp. The Woman in Life Force in 1985. You have Dracula's Widow in 1988. Fright Night 2, Female Vampire in 1988. Innocent Blood, which sadly I've never seen and I'd love to see. Same with Vamp. Uh, Innocent Blood, 1992. And then brought out good old Buffy the Vampire Slayer who's slain vampires without, you know, a lot of female vampires in that one. But we have our good old vampire hunter. I can't talk about any... <laughs> can't talk about... 
vampires though bringing up Buffy it's gotta happen oh well I was gonna say though you've got Drusilla you've got Darla like well, like going going further into the 90s yes so I stopped at <laughs> movies you gotta stop at some point <laughs> that's true that's true you know, when you read about female vampires, it brings up lesbian vampires, because you do see a good number of female vampires going after females. Uh, so the lesbian vampire perhaps expresses the male fear that female bonding will exclude men and therefore threaten their supremacy in our patriarchal lives. Um, but there is some problematic aspects to early female vampires, which you touched on, Jess, when it came to us talking about uh, you know, the reasons why we talked about the hunger. Um, so in history, in early, early vampire movies that, you know, it kind of showed that lesbians, I mean, if you were going after, if there were two women together, then they must be vampires. There must be a supernatural force, a violent force, that whole, you know, the higher power female of social status going after the younger or, you know, more naive or more innocent or vulnerable type woman. It would show, you know, it kind of shows lesbians a vampire rapist, which I brought up earlier, who violates and they destroy victims. Because, again, this may alleviate men's fear that lesbians could actually create an alternative home model, a sexual model, a relationship model, where two women without any kind of coercion or anything like that might actually prefer each other over a man. Very, very threatening. So our lesbian, quote-unquote, vampires are often hypersexualized and very violent, seen as an aberration, whereas male vampires, not so much. Brought that up earlier. They are seen as more of a deformation and not just as a vampire. So when we're looking at the film The Hunger, like The, the Hunger is a great and it's beautiful film done by Tony Scott. It is visually appealing. It, the music is so interesting. If you're uh, if you're okay with a film that is a good slow burn, this is a good film, a good vampire film to watch, especially because it really highlights the element of female sexuality and the role of the female feminine in a very different way. You know, when we look at female vampires now in the 21st century, when we think of female vampires, we think of Celine. We think of the female vampire in underwear who is there in like full latex and she's just fucking kicking ass and taking names and numbers. But we don't think of a, of a female vampire in the sense of, well, like, you know, in a sense of, uh, of sexuality, but in a way that is, uh, what's the word? Elegant. That's the word I want to use. Because as Kelly was discussing in the 1970s, when we looked at female, when we had female vampires, they were hypersexualized. And then when we look at female vampires now, they are hyper violently sexualized. And then not in the sense that they are, they're sexualized, but they are violent. They are hyper violent. They are fighting. They are fighting for a reason or they are being or they're using their violence to seduce their victims to for some further extent. But what the image of Miriam Baylock is that we see a very classic noir femme fatale. Her style is beautiful. I love how she dresses throughout the entire film. It is, she combines all, she combines her age in her, in the way she dresses. She, everything she wears is timeless. Her look, she's very sexual and, and very sexual appeal. And earlier Kelly had mentioned the aesthetic of the female vampire. And we see this in the image of Miriam Baylock. They have rosy cheeks. They have big eyes. They have full lips. They're very irresistible. And we see that in scenes when Miriam 
in all scenes with Miriam, not only when she's with John in the club, you know, and they're trying, they're seducing the victims. But when we see this later on, when she's uh, first meeting Sarah for the first time, is that she, you just cannot help but look at her, and she is mesmerizing. And I almost got very interested in watching the film because at first, when I would read about her, and about how she would uh, talk to her her victims, like. At first, I'm like, no, she can't be mesmerizing. I mean, she doesn't have any uh, power of that ability. But I'm like, is it just her looks? Is it just that, that timeless appeal, that timeless sexuality about her that appeals, that her victims, like, interested, like, see her and they're interested? Because I've read articles that say that she doesn't have any supernatural powers of that nature. So it's interesting that we see 25 years after the book, after Carmilla, that we see the power of female sexuality, the role of the female feminine being brought to a new level in demonstrating the love between two women. And we see this between Miriam and Sarah. Miriam is a very refined vampire. Uh, she doesn't actually have fangs. She uses this ancient um, anuct, uh, unk pendem, I'm not saying this right, to pierce her victim's flesh. She only feeds seven out of uh, one one out of seven days, so once a week, does she feed. Uh, she uses her looks, her beauty, and her sensuality to lure her victims. No uh, supernatural powers, as I was discussing earlier. And she becomes very attached to her, her not only her, vic not her, not her victims, but to her panamores, to her lovers. Into the sense that when she eventually sees them age, she can't, ev she can't even look at them. And... I find this film very interesting because it's, it, it mixes, it combines all kinds of things that really only a female vampire will really think, and I almost want to say like even a woman would think of is the ideas of love and passion and possession and sexual desire and how we feel about same-sex relationships in comparison to aging and when it comes to death. And it's a really deep film. Um, like we, we saw this in Interview with the Vampire, the whole ideas of how they deal with death and how they deal with immortality. And, but yeah, we don't really see that in The Hunger. We don't see this idea of how they're dealing with immortality. They're dealing with immortality in the sense of how they deal with their love for each other and their passion for one another. Um, we see that scene, um, the shower scene between Miriam and John, and he's like forever forever and ever and you know their, their passion for each other is still there like they still have this passion for one another it's that fear of aging and that fear that eventual death will come um, for her victims uh, no sorry pardon me not for her victims but for her lovers which in a way are kind of her victims because she kind of feeds off of their life force as they get older Miriam Blaylock is I think played so brilliantly by Catherine Denevu she is just goddamn mesmerizing. She is beautiful. Everything that you already said, like classic beauty. No. So she doesn't have any supernatural powers. However, she does seem to be clairvoyant. Um, that seems to be her main thing. And I feel like there's something about her that draws Sarah to her. And that's, and I don't know, I think, I feel like there's something with her. Maybe it's a, a form of suggestion. It's not super obvious in the movie. I would love to read the book. Like Jess said, this is actually based off of a book by Whitley Stryber in 1981, who also wrote alien abduction books because he apparently was abducted by aliens, which the movie Communion was based off of. Watch that weird Christopher Walken movie. <laughs> it's weird. Oh, Very strange. <laughs> 
but she's amazing. I read a little bit of history about her, that she was actually born a vampire, and there's five vampire children in her family. Shares blood with humans for companionship. You mentioned how often she has to feed. Yeah, she's not bothered by the sunlight. She doesn't shapeshift. No obvious religious, you know, symbol issues. She's very cunning, and she's been around since, you know, Egyptian time. So I think she's had a long time to become very street, street smart and know what she's doing. Yes, it would be amazing to know why her companions you know, eventually die. She never dies. Well, you know what I mean. She never ages and she won't die until she does. But you made this wonderful note about how wonderful this movie shows the relationship overall between Sarah and Miriam. So the vampire, the female vampires of the past were seen very monstrous and violent, whereas in this movie, it's absolutely, like, my favorite aspect of this, shows, let's say, lesbianism as it's sensual, it's sexy, it's sweet, it's beautiful, it's loving, it's coy. I adore that initial scene with Sarah and Miriam. Miriam's playing the piano, and they're drinking the sherry, and, like, Susan Sarandon's, like... She's, like, very interested in her, but she's off. this is probably most likely her first female-to-female experience. She's not really sure kind of how to handle herself, and you can see that as she's sitting in the chair. She's trying to look sexy, but she doesn't really know how to be sexy in this kind of scenario, but she's doing a great job. Yeah, like, she's got that awkwardness to her. Like, if she's like, okay, do I put yes, my makeup on yep. the chair or do I not? And you're like, oh, yeah. Right. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also not wearing a bra. Good job. Good job. And a white shirt, spill it on yourself. It's just this incredible, beautiful moment. So I feel like overall, it's a very female positive movie. And up until, you know, generally about this point, because this this came out in 83, the year I was born, you know, a lot of vampires, they weren't, they were not really shown in this kind of light. So it was really wonderful to see that. And then you bring, you know, Sarah into the picture and you have two very strong-willed and very intelligent women. So Sarah at first is very intrigued by everything, has a very wonderful day with her. But then once she finds out what's going on, there's a lot of mind control going on. Miriam does not let her know... Like, what has happened? She's kind of tricked her into this blood exchange, and now they're tied together forever. There's a bit of mind control going on, and once Sarah figures that out, she feels angry, she's betrayed, and she obviously wants to regain her control of her life, because that's the type of woman that she is. And you can also kind of see that when she's at dinner with her boyfriend that evening, after her first encounter with Miriam, and, you know, he's... Oh, he's so obviously super, super insecure and threatened because, you know, Sarah goes over to meet with Miriam and he's saying, well, what did you do all day? And she's like, I don't know. We talked. He's like, for three hours? I'm like, dude, women can talk for more hours than that. Like, why is that so, why are you so threatened by that? Yeah, they, I mean, we know what happened, but they very well could have had a very innocent, wonderful day together. And it, but he was so threatened by this seemingly innocent, you know, visit 
that it kind of comes back down to, you know, maybe that uh, the aspect of female vampires and that having that kind of seduction and, and relationship between two women could be very threatening, threatening to men. Besides, again, Miriam is so lonely. And I just feel like vampires are the loneliest creatures. You know, all she wants is just a companion to live with until they die eventually. And then she gets another one. And but she so gently and lovingly, lovingly, quote unquote, keeps them in boxes, boxes forever. <laughs> yeah, what you're saying, like you said, like the ending, you're kind of uh, still con confused about. Because I always remember like watching the ending. The ending confuses me too, right? Is her companions don't actually die. Yeah. They just become extremely old, and she puts them in coffins. Yeah. And because like she even says, like when John uh, passes and she puts him in a coffin, she says to her previous lover, like, please keep him company. Yeah. Like, he's scared. He's alone. Yeah. And when we see at the end where like they all rise up from the coffins and she like becomes overwhelmed and falls to her death. Yeah. Even then, though, she doesn't really die because we see Sarah become like the new Miriam mm -hmm. with her two with her two new lovers. But Miriam herself is buried away in a coffin. So Yeah, so I kind of see that as somehow maybe there was, and I don't know why, some f transference of power from Miriam to Sarah. How or why, I don't know. Like, Sarah tries to kill herself. She's like, fuck this and my mind control and having to be, you know, forcefully connected to you for the rest of my life forever. Um, so Sarah is dying, and then shit hits the fan with Miriam's previous lovers. And at one point I'm like, is this actually happening? Or is this some kind of like, you know, trauma induced hallucination that, you know, all of her lovers are coming after her. She, maybe she feels bad that she did this to Sarah. Now Sarah is, we think dead, but then we find out that she's not, but somehow there was that transference of power because yeah, Sarah comes back. She heals from that, injury and Miriam is a withered old woman in a coffin yeah so I never like I said I'm I'm also of the I'd never truly understand understood that ending and like so I'm curious as to how the book ended it because she doesn't actually die she's in a coffin Sarah's the new Miriam yeah. it's yeah. and it's like almost like Sarah's starting that new cycle right because she has two lovers totally. she has the young man and the young woman totally yeah well, what I read is that in the book, that ending is actually very different, whereas Miriam wins and Sarah does not. So oh. I am also super curious to find out so, what actually happens in this book. Yeah. So we need to find this book. So if anyone who's listening to this <laughs> podcast knows about where we can like locate this book, please send us a link or send us something because we would like to read this. That's super. Send us a gift. Yes. Send us a gift of the book. I will give you my address. Send us this book. We will love it. We will, we will both read it and, and discuss it. <laughs> Oh, it'd be so good. Further podcasts. Side note, now we know all about Miriam and what happens in the fucking book. <laughs> yeah. What is what truly happens in the ending? I really think just somehow there was that transference of power, and then maybe her past lovers could feel this transference of power, like, and now we can rise up our old withered selves and take her down. Maybe there's some old resentment. Because they all end up dying. I'm sure after five hundred years and you'd promised me forever and ever now I'm dying quickly I'd be mad too yeah like they're probably connected to her through her blood so as long as she lives they will live so if she dies they'll die 
But then Sarah would die too. So that doesn't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I know. Doesn't make any sense. However, whereas the ending doesn't make any sense, it's still a beautiful film where it shows a very interesting film of a female vampire who's like a femme fatale who has a very in the beginning a very interesting and loving seductive sensual relationship with sarah before sarah reasserts her own power as a strong woman hence the strong woman to take back her power from the fact that she feels like her choice was taken away from her from this female vampire which i feel is very problematic when we look at both the comparison of male to female vampires when I see female vampires on the screen, they're usually seen as either vicious monsters or as lesbians who are in some way, shape, or form trying to control their victims seemingly against their will with some form of mind control or seductive uh, powers. And to me, I find, like I said, it's somewhat problematic. While all vampires are seen as predatory in nature, female vampires, especially lesbian ones, are seen as deviant and evil. They seduce their female victims away from their male protagonists who then has to right the wrong by killing the vampiric element to set things right in a patriarchal heterosexual world. So hence, you know, I feel like the hunger will see, we see that when uh, the, the boyfriend tries to save Sarah. Um, as well, most of the time, female vampiric relationships are typically hypersexualized and filmed in such a way to appeal to the male audience or hence the male gaze. And if they were not shown as such hypersexualized queer vampires, female vampires are seen as monstrous in their violence towards human life, or they're used as pawns for powerful vampires to procure sustenance, such as uh, Dracula's brides. Male vampires, uh, while we while we seen how as we've seen them in Interview with a Vampire can have a queer or pansexual relationship with other vampires, it's not often se sexualized, but more sensualized. That the sensual love between two men is more intoxicating and is a of higher intelligence and sophistication. The women in Interview with a Vampire are portrayed as Louis and Lestat's victims and are seen as giving them, giving into their base desires to be possessed wholly by them as vampires, as they feast on their blood. Lestat shows very little regret and he even shows disdain for his victims, while Louis, he pities the women. He pities the women for falling into their base instincts and allowing themselves to be taken by him. So women in these films are either objectified as food or inconveniences, or they complicate relationships as we see when they introduce Claudia into their loving family, um, as Lestat sees her as a complication to their perfect love or, their, or life with Louis. As we see this interesting origin of female and male vampires and how they all have a very interesting history when it comes to being, to being sexualized. Male vampires are typically, they're either seen as sexual predators, as we've seen with uh, Dracula, in the sense that they must possess their women to be able to grow their power base to, uh, to, ta to take on the mortal world that they see as a threat, or they're seen as very sensual creatures um, and they have very high sophisticated relationships with one another. And then we see the female vampire where they are either hypersexualized and they're using their power in the sense that it's deviant and evil and they must be taken down in some way, shape or form or their, sexual, their sexualized nature of the female vampire is now being seen as a very hyper violent means in the sense that they are using their 
their femininity to fight a force that is a threat to the vampiric nature and like once again i'll reference celine in the underworld series where she's fighting against the uh the werewolves and protecting the vampiric culture we're werewolves not swear wolves <laughs> <laughs> love that movie so good. <laughs> the origins the absolute origins of female and male vampires come obviously so we notice today from the the same place transylvania both as vlad a ruthless though intelligent man and elizabeth bathory a beautiful intelligent strong woman when we start seeing them come together, their inspirations in literature and film, they go in very opposite directions. You know, like we talked about the female vampires being monstrous and violent, almost like rapists, like very negative, very, very negative. And only recently, really recently, did we see changes in that 80s into the 90s, whereas the male vampires kind of are, are you know, upholding still slightly gentlemanly exotic and mysterious and a bit monstrous but not at all in the same vein as as women could this be related and due to the fact that the film industry and the horror industry are pretty much dominated and run all by men that's a possibility right <laughs> you know We've seen that, and we talked about that in our first podcast, about the origins of horror and film dominated by men, men's views. I learned about, it is called The Wise Wound, and it is a book written by Penelope Shuttle and Peter Redgrove. And as as we know, the, the origins of vampires and definitely in film, which we'll always talk about, really, film is problematic with the, the showcasing of, of, of females in, in a monstrous light and as deformations and depraved creatures. So an attempt for feminists to explain, you know, everything, an attempt to deal with this mainly male presence of the vampire myth, they look towards this book. Like I said, it's called The Wise Wound, and it's a theory of a snake causing the menstrual cycle, or vampires. So it's a new look and an old folktale, old folktale stories of a snake that lived in the moon and bit women, which then caused them to get their period. There's the motifs of the womb, the snake, and the moon, which are all integral to the vampire myth. We notice that when, when vampire bites, the marks are actually much closer together than the fangs of the vampires, like a snake. The victims first very passive, they bleed, and then become sexually active. They're sexualized, their body changes, their feelings change. So the vampire is kind of like the snake of this legend, bringing the flow of blood which, is init which initiates a phase of a sexual existence. Thought that that was a little bit interesting. Makes me look at things a little bit differently. That is very interesting. <laughs> and that ends our episode exploring vampires and sexuality through the film's Interview of the Vampire and the Hunger. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music called Robeast. Blair for his assistance in editing our podcast episodes and all of you listeners who have been engaging with us and supporting us after a couple of months of our launch. 
We want to remind you to follow us on our website, www.spinstersofhorror.com. Facebook, search for Spinsters of Horror. Twitter is at Horror Spinsters. You'll find us on Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. You can also email us at horrorspinsters at gmail.com. As well, please write and review us on SoundCloud and Stitcher and any other podcasting app you are listening to us on. And tune in next month as we get to talk about witches in horror and exploring both the good and bad witch dichotomy in horror and the elements of female empowerment and persecution. This will be explored in two films, The Autopsy of Jane Doe and the 1973 film The Season of the Witch, which was done by George Romero. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female.